Chapter 2 of The Life of Philip Melanchthon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madison Rutherford. The Life of Philip Melanchthon by Carl Friedrich Lederosa. Translated by Gottlob Frederick Krotal. Chapter 2 The University. When he had spent two years in the town school of Borsheim, he had improved himself so much that he wrote down his own thoughts, both in the Latin and Greek languages, with facility. He already composed neat verses in these strange languages. Thus it came to pass that, although he was but thirteen years old, he could already enter the University of Heidelberg. His acquirements were of a superior character. He was received as a student on the 13th of October, 1509. In Heidelberg, it was his good fortune to become an inmate of the house of a distinguished scholar, Dr. Pallas Spengel. Although Pallas held fast to the established order of things in religious matters, he was not opposed to anything better. Melanchthon rejoiced in afterlife that he had enjoyed the intercourse of this age and, in his own way, pious professor. He was instructed in the elements of astronomy by Dr. Cesarius and praised him in the following words. I acknowledge that I owe particular esteem and gratitude to him as my teacher, but he principally devoted himself to the ancient languages, and that with such zeal that his knowledge of them increased more and more, and the learned boy became generally known in Heidelberg. On a certain occasion the teacher had proposed a very difficult question and asked, Where will I find a Grecian? The students cried out with one voice, Melanchthon, Melanchthon. He was generally called the Grecian. At another time, a teacher was suddenly seized with illness during the hour of instruction. He did not stop the lecture, however, but without delay said, Philip, let your fellow students proceed, and do you occupy my place. His quiet and decorous conduct procured him the distinction of instructing the sons of Count Louis of Lowenstein. The counts became so attached to him that they maintained a friendly correspondence with him in after years. On the 10th of June, 1511, he was already honored with a degree of Bachelor of Arts, Although he spent many happy hours in Heidelberg, in the society of learned men and talented youths, yet did the place no longer satisfy him. This was partly owing to the fact that the university did not number such men among its instructors under whom he could make any further great progress, and partly also to the climate of Heidelberg, which did not agree with him. He was annually troubled with fever in the spring, which enfeebled him very much, so that his anxious mother strongly wished for a change of residence. To this was added that he was seeking the degree following the bachelorette, that of Master of Arts. His instructors, however, considered themselves bound to deny this request, because he was too young and of too childish an appearance. This occasioned great pain to the young man, and made his departure still more desirable. In after life, it is true, he formed a correct judgment of the refusal of his youthful request. It is often very good for young persons if their wishes are not all gratified. This I experienced at Heidelberg. In the autumn of the year 1512, we find Melanchthon upon the road to the University of Tübingen. It had not long before been founded by Duke Everard with the beard, a man who was ever anxious for the welfare of his country. Tübingen had at that time already a good reputation. That which Melanchthon considered the most important employed his labors also in the nursery of science. The Greeks and Romans were his favorites, yet not in a one-sided manner, for he was also attracted by mathematics and astronomy, to which he was encouraged by the distinguished professor Steffler. When he was therefore engaged in reading the Greek writer Esiod with his friend Hauschein, who became so well known and useful in the Reformation under the name of Oeculampadius, 
he could obtain an explanation of those passages which referred to astronomy from Steffler alone. He also made himself acquainted with jurisprudence and medicine. He gathered a mass of information which in a young man of his age really can be called extraordinary. But divinity attracted him above all other things. This did not flow from the unrefreshing spirit which then pervaded the science. The old beaten track of the Middle Ages was still pursued in all the universities. Altogether neglecting the Bible, the only fountain of true Christianity, men were merely concerned with the teachings of the church. These were empty, fruitless subtleties, in which a sincerely seeking soul could find no nourishment. He heard Lempis, the most distinguished professor in this field, who, when explaining transubstantiation to his hearers, could write it down with chalk upon the board to make it more intelligible. Melanchthon read the writings of William Oakham, an old scholastic, with great zeal. But the curious structure erected by the Catholic Church by its system of doctrine could not attract him any longer when he had become the owner of a Bible. His beloved cousin Roycklin had presented him with one. He loved the holy volume more than everything else as he became better acquainted with its precious contents. As Roycklin diligently read the holy book and took it with him upon his journeys, so now did Melanchthon. He carried it with him in his bosom and could not part with it. He read it carefully day and night. Here he found explanations which no professor in Tübingen and no priest in the church were able to give him. How disgusted he must have been to hear priests upon the pulpits discourse upon a passage of the Greek philosopher Aristotle, or to listen to another who was laboring to prove that the wooden shoe of the Franciscans was made of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in paradise. Whenever, therefore, he went to church, he carried his Bible with him. During the progress of the ceremonies, and while the people were reading in the prescribed prayer books, he was wrapped up in the reading of his Bible. Some evil-disposed persons took offense at this and endeavored to render him suspected. It is impossible to show Melanchthon's case, as it can be done in that of Luther and other great men of Christ's church, how he arrived at the knowledge of the truth and an experience of the grace of God. This saving change in him seems to have been brought about gradually, Beyond doubt, it was closely connected with the reading and deeper searching of the Holy Scriptures. His acquaintance with Roycklin was also propitious. Melanchthon frequently journeyed to the not-far-distant city of Stuttgart, where Roycklin then resided. The latter also came to Tübingen and did not think it beneath him to occupy the room and eat the fare of his youthful friend. Here they conversed much of the corrupt condition of the church, but the time was near when mere conversation should be changed to open testimony. At that time, great darkness reigned in Cologne. The theologians, as well as the Dominican monks of that place, had demanded that all Jewish writings should be burned. When the emperor called upon Reuchlin for his opinion in this matter, he defended most of these writings. This enraged the people of Cologne, who were led by the baptized Jew Pfefferkorn and the inquisitor Hochstraten. They appealed to the pope. It gave Reuchlin much trouble and caused much correspondence to and fro. Melanchthon also became involved in the matter, together with a large number of the most distinguished men who entered the list in Reuchlin's defense and were obliged to bear the name of content, Reuchlinists. We here already meet the well-known knight Ulrich von Huden, who wielded a sharp pen, as well as the brave and noble Francis von Zeckingen with the knightly sword. Before this time, January 25th, 1514, consequently in the 17th year of his life, Melanchthon, as the first among eleven candidates received the degree of Master of Arts and the privilege of delivering lectures. He lectured principally on Virgil, Terence, Cicero, and Livy, and at once exhibited his great talents as a teacher. The students listened to him with pleasure, and soon many distinguished young men gathered around him. But he not only gained applause in his chair in the university, he also began to appear as an author. 
As early as the year 1516, Erasmus of Rotterdam, one of the most learned men of that time, gave him the warmest eulogium in the words, My God, what promising hopes does Philip Melanchthon give us, who, yet a youth, yes almost a boy, deserves equal esteem for his knowledge in both languages. What sagacity in argument, what purity of expression, what a rare and comprehensive knowledge, what extensive reading, what a delicacy and elegance of mind does he not display. A man of such mind and acquirements, and who, besides all this, bore a deeper knowledge within, could no longer remain in his confined position in Tübingen. The lord of the church had selected a different theatre for his labours and struggles. When, by the advice of Reuchlin, he had declined a call to the bigoted University of Ingolstadt, another extensive and richly blessed field of labour was thrown open to him. The elector Frederick of Saxony, who has very properly been called the wise in the spring of the year 1518, wrote to Reuchlin from Augsburg, where he was attending the diet, requesting him to propose to him a teacher of the Greek and one of the Hebrew language for his university at Wittenberg. Wittenberg had already acquired a great reputation, not only in Germany, but throughout Europe, on account of the mighty and bold step which an Augustian monk, Martin Luther, had taken about half a year before. Who has not heard of the 95 Theses nailed by that monk on the church door at Wittenberg on the 31st of October, 1517, against the doctrine of indulgences and other matters connected with it, and which circulated so rapidly that it seemed almost in the language of a contemporary as if the angels had served as footposts? All better disposed minds, to which class Reuchlin also belonged, joyfully welcomed the appearance of the intrepid monk of Wittenberg. When, therefore, the request of the elector to seek out two professors was made to Reuchlin, he could not propose a more able and suitable man to Frederick the Wise than his own relative, Melanchthon. He had received the youthful master's permission to do this. The elector was highly pleased, especially as Tübingen had already supplied him with several able men. Testimony concerning Melanchthon, such as that given by Reuchlin, could not but produce the most favorable impression. He says, Among the Germans I know of no one who excels him, except Erasmus of Rotterdam, and he is an Hollander. As Duke Ulrich felt the loss he was about to sustain, he endeavored to retain him. An old narrative gives us the following account. In the meantime, Duke Ulrich of Württemberg, who wished to keep Philip in his own land, sent Conrad von Sickingen, who was then his servant, to Master Philip's mother, to inform her that if her son wished to enter the priesthood, he could apply to his grace. Then he would also provide him with a good benefice on account of his sainted father's faithful services. However, Philip had no inclination to become a priest, but intended to comply with the invitation of the elector of Saxony and to serve his grace the elector in the university, which also eventually came to pass. Reuchlin dismissed his young friend in the parental manner with these beautiful words, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Genesis 12, 1-2. This the Spirit tells me, and this hope do I entertain of thee, my Philip, my work and my comfort. Go then, with a cheerful and happy courage. Thus blessed and consecrated by his old friend, whom he was not to behold again in this world, he bid adieu to him and all his friends. He also paid a parting visit to the beloved ones in Breton. His teacher, Zemmler, who was professor of the Greek language in Tübingen, remarked on the day of Langton's departure, the entire city ought to mourn the departure of this Melanchthon, and all those now residing in Tübingen have not even advanced far enough in their studies fully to appreciate how much they had lost by the removal of this great man. In August, Melanchthon is on his way. He made some valuable acquaintances. In Augsburg, he was admitted to an audience with the elector and became acquainted with his chaplain and secretary, Spalatin, 
and they remained together until the close of the Diet. The celebrated statesman Perkheimer in Nuremberg at Patronum Langton also received a visit from the young professor. On the 20th of August, he reached Leipzig. Here, the university honored him with an entertainment. He here declined a call to Ingolstadt, as well as one from Leipzig. He remained true to his promise. On the 25th of August, 1518, he arrived in his new field of labor, Wittenberg, to the joy of all, and his reception was a festive one. End of chapter 2. Recording by Madison Rutherford.